Sunday, here once again from our very own Rachel Sosby. Uh, I was on continuing education this week, and so she graciously, graciously offered to speak uh, on, on, our, on my behalf uh, to preach again. This is her second time. She did such a great job the first time around. We invited her back. In fact, it was funny, on Facebook, when she was mentioning she's preparing another sermon, and one of her friends commented and said, Wow, you're preaching again so soon. They either the pa- either they really liked it or the pastor just really enjoyed the break. And I real quickly commented and said, <laughs> as her pastor, I can speak to both being true. <laughs> so I am grateful that she is giving me the break to do it, but she did do a wonderful job last time. So Rachel, we'll hand it over to you. Thank you. back in order. It's on. It's on, isn't it? It's on. All right, so welcome back. We are in week five of our series, A Church Like Jesus. There we go. And we're looking at what does it mean to be a church like Jesus? What should be important to us in light of the scriptures and what Jesus did in in his ministry? Um, Pop quiz time. We did it last week, so it shouldn't be too much, too bad. Uh, Week one was What did we look at? Invitation. Shout it out. Invitation. We looked at the story of Zacchaeus and how inviting people, how we're inviting people and meeting them where they are. We are inviting, and when we invite people to church, we're not really inviting them to church. We're inviting them to Jesus. Week two was, we looked at the woman. creativity and communication that's right jesus we saw jesus right in the sand when he was backed in the corner and we looked at how do we how can we approach people creatively and share the truth about jesus and then week three last week was giving rest yoke is easy uh burden is light it was first impressions a church like jesus understands problems and lifts burdens And then we struggle with the questions. We're asked the question, do we reflect that light and understanding in our lives and our encounter with others? And this week, we're going to look at worship. How does a church like Jesus worship? Before we do that, let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the freedom that we have to worship you in this place. Uh, Let us not take that for granted. Help us to boldly go out in the world And let them know of you. Let our life reflect that. And let our worship, either here in this place or what we do outside of these walls, reflect that as well. Be in our time. Open our ears to hear what you have for us to hear. Open our eyes so we can see what you have for us to see. And then give us bold hands and feet to go out and show that to the world. And be with me today as I present the story and your words Let it fall where it may fall and get me out of the way and show only you. In your name we pray. Amen. So before we actually dig into the text, we're going to go back just a little bit so you guys have some context as to what we heard. So Jesus was tired and he was hungry and he was resting at this well in a Samaritan region because the disciples, he and the disciples, were actually on their way from Judea to Galilee. And they took the short route instead of going all the way around. And they went through this town, the Samaritan region. Now, as Patrick mentioned, Samaritans and Jews, 
really kind of avoided each other. They didn't like each other very much. They, but that's because they were close relatives. They were both originally from the 12 tribes of Jacob, but they split a long, long time ago over the understanding of where God called them to worship. It was the original worship war. And that division never left them. That division ran deep and it ran hard. So when the disciples left to go get some food, they were really hungry because they didn't think they'd be able to get food. It was unlikely that they would even, that they would be able to get food. It was unlike, they were only going to be able to get food if they bought food. And that was if they found a Samaritan that was desperate enough to sell it to a bunch of Jewish people. So they left a hungry Jesus at a well, resting. They didn't really think he could get him through too much of anything, just sitting there tired in the middle of the day at a well when no one was going to come to this well. But this woman that we hear about went and got her water during the middle of the day, which was unusual. Usually they got it in the morning. Now, we looked at this text a few months ago, and Patrick told us that maybe that was because she went so no one would see her. It was a way of avoiding people. So it was probably to her much annoyance that Jesus began to engage with her. And that's where we're often running. Our first interaction is a physical interaction. Jesus asks for something physical. He asks for a drink. And the woman in kind responds with something physical. She focuses on their visible physical identities. He, a thirsty Jewish man, and she, a Samaritan woman. But Jesus tries to draw her beyond the physical, that physical here and now, into an identity of a deeper identity, that of gift giver and gift receiver. So that leads us to our first characteristic of worship in a church like Jesus. Worship engages us in the physical here and now, but draws us beyond, draws out truth beyond the present here and now. Jesus tries to draw her beyond the physical here and now. Jesus answers her. If you knew, Jesus answered her, if you knew the, the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman's a little dense. She wants the water, but she doesn't understand how he's going to get the water, because she has the bucket. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? So Jesus tries again. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. But the woman still doesn't get it. But he has her attention this time. She would love to not have to come to this well where everyone can see her and gossip about her. But she's not trying to get, but she doesn't get that Jesus is trying to give her something more. So he tries a new approach. He tries to get her attention with something that no stranger will know. Jesus says to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answers him, I have no husband. The woman said to her, 
you're right in saying you have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. So she's closer. She's almost got it. She realizes he's something special, but she's still not seeing the big picture. But she's hooked, and she wants to keep talking. So if you run into a prophet, and you want to keep talking to them, what do you talk to them about? You talk to them about God. So she engages in theological conversation. But she goes for what separates them, not what unites them. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Samaritans were from the tribe of Ephraim and Levi, and they split from the Israelites over worship location. They followed, that, they followed what God commanded them in the desert to worship at Mount Gerizim, not move it to the temple in Jerusalem. Samaritan translated means guardians or keepers of the Torah. They called themselves worshipers of true religion. So the woman here is justifying her theological position and pointing out their theological differences. But we're really no different. If you meet a fellow disciple, do you talk about your similarities or your differences? Your differences. You ask them, what church do you go to? What denomination is it? What is worship like or unlike? What theological understandings do you have similar? What ones do you have different? I have a colleague who pastors a church outside of Atlanta, and at a recent gathering we attended together, she shared her insight on the root of denominationalism by breaking down the word denomination. D is to lessen, remove, or reverse, to decrease. Nom, the root word for the word name. I, God is the great I am. And nation, we are a chosen people, a holy uh, royal priesthood, a holy nation. Denominationalism has removed the unity of God, God's holy nation, by dividing us into our smallest components. It has reversed our focus on the great I am and put it on names and distinctions. What separates us, not what unites us. And just like this woman at the well, she didn't recognize her unity as offspring of Abraham and Jacob and worshipers of the same God, Yahweh. She focused on the differences of how they do that. You in your temple, me on my father's mountain. It's not, if it's not the letters behind the door that separates us, it's our style of worship. Our church in Columbus has multiple services, three traditional and one non-traditional. And a lot of people identify themselves not by the ministries that they do, who or what they serve, but by which service they attend. Oh, we're traditional. Or we're a contemporary service family. We divide ourselves even if we're unified as a family. But Jesus pushes us beyond this point. He unites us. He points out that in a church like Jesus, worship shows us what's bigger than what divides us. It's not what or how we worship, but who. We identify ourselves by what divides us, denomination, church polity, worship style, whatever, not what unites us, our identity. Our identity in Christ as redeemed, saved, 
people called to follow Christ and shine his light in the darkness and bring hope and healing to the world through Jesus. We're all equal in the sight of God. We all fall short. None of us deserves to be here in the presence of God. But through his great mercy, he has sent his son, Jesus. The man standing before us in this text telling us that the hour is coming when we will worship the Father, neither on this mountain, in this neither in this denominational construct, neither with human written liturgies and hymns, with guitar or piano or organ, in a warehouse, in a school, in a brink sanctuary, or a clapboard building. Jesus tells us, oops, where, where did I? Sorry. Jesus tells us, you worship what we do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. You worship what you know. We, you worship what you do not know. We do not know God when we put our focus and our priorities on these differences, these preferences, these understandings of what true worship is instead of on God's mercy and provision for us. A church like Jesus worship focuses on the unity, on what unites us and worships what we know. God's right and power to demand justice and to offer us salvation. Salvation that comes through God, through the gift of his son, his perfect, stainless life for our broken, stained attempt at a righteous life. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. A, true, a church like Jesus worships in spirit and truth. But to understand what that part means, we have to do a little studying, a little word studying. So we'll start with worship. Worship's from the Greek word. Worship here in the Greek literally is I worship, bow down, kiss the ground, prostrate before a superior, adore on knees, and do reverence. We get our word worship from the word worth-ship. Worth being important, something that has high value. And then ship is the condition or character of something. So to worship is to give importance, a high value to a person or thing. So when we worship, we see what God is worth and give him what he's worth. In a sermon on Psalm 25, a, a psalm all about worship, Pastor Timothy Keller puts it this way. Worship is an act of ascribing ultimate value to God, seeing what he's worth, and living in accordance with it in such a way that it transforms your whole life. Now, we're going to come back to this, so hold this definition in your mind. We're going to look at a few other words first. The next is spirit. And spirit here is used in two different ways. It's used first to talk about God. God is spirit. Literally, it means God is breath. God is wind. The next is to talk about our spirit. And our spirit also means breath and wind. Looking at how this is applied in the Greek world and then 
so in this text. It's applied two different ways. First is the spirit, it's, the spirit is understood as the vital principle by which the body is animated. Take a minute and think, what transformed Adam from a pile of dust into living? It was God's breath. And God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Commentaries on the word that gives us this Greek understanding also said that the spirit was understood as the rational spirit, the power by which the human being feels, thinks, wills, decides, is the soul. So spirit is more than just this ambiguous thing in our chest that God breathed into us and that we hold on to until the dementors maybe suck it out of us. The spirit is what animates us. It's our rational spirit. It's what we think. It's our mind. It's the power by which we feel. It's our heart. And it wills, it decides, it's that inner strength that we have. And finally, it's our soul. Makes me think of a couple Bible verses there. You know, and do the understanding of the spirit of what God asks is, is only what God asks for us in the great commandment. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Jesus uses this and repeats it when he's put to the test, when he's asked which commandment is the greatest. He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. In worship, we're asked to do no less. This is the spirit in which we are to worship. The next word is truth. Truth here literally means truth as spoken, truth as idea, reality, true to fact, sincerity, truth in the moral sphere, truth, divine truth revealed to man. Doesn't this definition describe any of the encounters Jesus has? He lays out reality as is, and then reality as, it, as he sees it. And this encounter that we're reading today is no different. The woman continually throws earthly differences back at Jesus. And Jesus just volleys back the truth around those stumbling blocks. He gets to the core issue and speaks truth of idea and reveals divine truth. And he pulls the woman at her own pace with him into the divine reality in which he's speaking of. Now, we looked at some of those words. Let's go back to that definition of worship. Worship is an act of ascribing ultimate value to God, seeing what he's worth, and living in accordance with it in such a way that it transforms your whole life. When you worship, you are ascribing value to something. It is the truth that Jesus shares about the Father that drives us to our knees to worship. It's the truth that we are only piles of confused, dirty ash, and without God's gift of the Spirit breathed into us, without that fresh breath of grace, mercy, forgiveness, and cleansing that only Jesus can cover us with, it is only in that truth, with that spirit, that we can begin to comprehend how great and awesome is God, that we, can't, that we come to bow and worship and offer our meager, heartfelt praise. 
Jesus tells the woman that God seeks true worshipers that worship in spirit and truth. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Seek here means to search for, desire, to seek by inquiring, to investigate. The Lord searches our hearts for this worship in spirit and truth. It's why we start with confession each week. We cannot offer our mind, heart, soul, and strength until we have uncovered it from the sins that keep us thinking that we are the source of each of those things. God is the source. God is truth and spirit. What is the woman's response to this kind of worship? The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who... I who speak to you am he. So this leads us to the next, ident- the next characteristic. A church like Jesus reveals identity. It reveals our secret identities of hypocrite, sinner, needy, selfish, liar. Just like Jesus did with the woman. Her reason for wanting a new source of living water wasn't because she wanted Jesus. She didn't want to come to that well anymore and be confronted by her sins. But Jesus gently uncovered the truth, the truth that he already knew what she was hiding and still talked to her and still felt felt like she was worthy of worshiping God. Worship also reveals who Jesus is. Her response to Jesus was to recognize him as Messiah. She knows that Messiah is Christ. Christ will come and proclaim, proclaim, announce, report, make known. He announces his purpose. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water, gushing up to eternal life. He reports her brokenness and the Samaritan's misguided focus in worship. And he makes known his identity. I am he. Now this translation that we had is not a full translation. In, he, in this translation, language limits us. It gets in our way. And in this case, it's not, not enough words. It's too many words muddying up the truth being declared. At the woman's revelation of Messiah, as Jesus, Jesus responds with, I am. The he in the English is added. I am is a non-gender, non-time specific. It's an omnitemporal term. similar to that used in the term Yahweh. He is telling her, I am God, I am he. A church like Jesus reveals identity. And this is where our text leaves us. So we're going to go just a little bit beyond it because to get a complete picture of what a church like Jesus worships, or how a church like Jesus worships, we need to look at the postscript. We need to look at the epilogue. Because worship, here we go, to go back to that definition, worship is an act of ascribing ultimate value to God, seeing what he's worth, and living in such accordance with it 
in such a way that it transforms your whole life. A church, in a church like Jesus, worship transforms us, prepares us, and sends us out to be missionaries throughout the world. As soon as Jesus does the big reveal, his disciples come in and ruin the moment. They're back from the city getting food, and they immediately let into Jesus about speaking to this Samaritan woman. She leaves, leaving her jars. I guess she found the living well after all. And goes into a city and tells everyone about her encounter. The disciples in the meantime get a lesson about living food, their immediate need. And that they will be called to harvest a food that isn't there. What? Wait for it. The woman comes back with a crowd of people that want to hear the truth for themselves. And they believe because of her testimony. The disciples get to witness a harvest that they were completely absent for. A harvest done by a Samaritan woman, no less. The woman was so changed and so transformed that she willingly went into the city, into the crowd, and spoke to them. She was so changed that many saw the difference and wanted to see why for themselves. She was so changed that this woman that avoided crowds was the agent that brought them to know salvation. A church that worships like Jesus doesn't stop at Revelation. We're transformed by the Holy Spirit and the church organization and the individuals within inspire and support mission in the daily lives and venues that worshipers are sent out to. Worship transforms and prepares and sends out missionaries. This happens in our fellowship, in our ministries, in our teaching, in our sermons, and that transform and challenge us and change our thinking. It happens in our prayers for hope and healing, in our songs that remind us who God is and in our commissioning. To recap, a church like Jesus worships in spirit and truth. A church like Jesus worships God the Father in spirit and truth and engages in the physical here and now, but it draws out truth beyond the present here and now. A church like Jesus worships God the Father in spirit and truth and shows us that what unites us is bigger than what divides us. It's not what we worship or how we worship, but who we worship. A church like Jesus, a church like Jesus worships God the Father in spirit and truth and starts with emptying ourselves and worshiping the complete source of spirit and truth, God our Father. A church like Jesus worships God the Father in spirit and truth and reveals our identity, our need for Jesus, the Savior, and reveals Jesus' identity and God's character and greatness. A church like Jesus worships God the Father in spirit and truth and changes us. It doesn't leave us alone to be ourselves. Worship changes our heart, soul, mind, and strength. A church like Jesus worships God the Father in spirit and truth, preparing us to be missionaries, to proclaim and display the power of, of the hope and healing found in Jesus the Christ. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for these words and the example of the Samaritan woman. And we thank you for your spirit and truth. Help us to find that spirit and truth daily and help us to go out and be your light and to take that spirit and truth out into the world. We ask all this in your name. Amen.